Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. So, we're continuing on our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, those of you who've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember how we've talked about how a creed is a summary of some of the really key teachings from the Bible about who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, and what they have done, are doing, and will do. Uh, this guides our interpretation, acts as our confession, and a reminder not only of what we believe, but what we share with so many others. Um, and if you haven't been with us these last few weeks, I encourage you to uh, check out the last few weeks uh, on, on our website. But for today, we come to the third and final part of the section on Jesus. So the section on Jesus started with, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, which focused on the identity of Jesus. And then last week, Andrew took us through the next part that focused on Jesus' life, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And today we're looking at what comes after that. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So when we think about Jesus, we can often focus on the story of the cross. And that's a good thing to do, because the cross is at the centre of the story. But it's not the whole story, and it's certainly not the end of the story either. And in part, because of that focus on the cross, the things we'll look at today are sometimes parts of the story we don't talk about so much. Certainly the first two, the idea that Jesus ascended into heaven and that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And perhaps because we don't talk about them so much, we might not always know why they matter. What difference does it make? And then the third part, Jesus' return and judgment. Well, that one we either try not to talk about much, or we make it the thing we always talk about. And neither of those are really that helpful. And so hopefully today I'll be able to help you understand why all three of these things matter and what the implications of them might be for us. So we're going to start off with the Ascension, and we'll read the story of Jesus' Ascension from the beginning of Acts. So from Acts 1, uh, starting in verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, as a story, the ascension is pretty simple. Jesus is taken up into the sky, and the disciples don't see him anymore. But just because it's a simple story does not mean it's not, doesn't mean it's not significant. And the ascension has some important implications. Now, first, it's just, it marks the end of an era. It puts a de definitive stop to the time when Jesus was walking on earth. You see, over the weeks after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to many of the disciples. Now, after that happened a few times, they might have thought that that was just going to keep on happening. They'd always be looking out for Jesus walking through the door. Like, literally, he didn't seem to need to actually open the door to come through. But when Jesus ascends, it says, that's the end of that stage. Get ready, because it's almost time for you to get to work. And along with that, it helps the disciples realize that one of their ideas about what God was doing wasn't quite right. We see that in the way before Jesus ascends, they ask him, is now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking, now Jesus is risen, now is going to be the time when God will establish his kingdom on earth, that final setting all things right. Which, to be fair, was not an unreasonable thought. A resurrection is a pretty good, big deal, and even more if it's the resurrection of God's Messiah, his chosen one. If Jesus is risen, death is defeated. Isn't everything starting to change? Of course it is, but not in the way they thought. Not through the creation of an earthly kingdom then and there. So the ascension helps show what means that God's kingdom has come. I mean, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't come like an earthly kingdom with force and violence. It comes instead by the power of the Spirit, transforming people, leading them towards lives of love and peace, life and humility. But we haven't yet exhausted the meaning of the ascension. Uh, there's one more thing I want to draw your attention to. Notice how Jesus does not just leave his human body behind. Jesus takes his human body with him. Jesus takes humanity into the place where God dwells. He keeps that human humanity. Humanity now no longer in its broken, sin-damaged state, but Humanity as it was always supposed to be. 
humanity as we will be, humanity clothed in righteousness and immortality, humanity imperishable and with God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm I'm not going to read it now, but we get this whole meditation on the resurrection and it explores our resurrection in light of Jesus' resurrection. And we can draw the parallels in part because Jesus doesn't simply use a human body and then discard it. But he keeps his humanity and shows us what it was supposed to be. You see, our goal is not to become disembodied, but renewed. The fact that Jesus takes his humanity with him into heaven tells us that humanity is going to continue. Yes, we'll be transformed, made new, but we don't cast off our humanity to become angels or spirits or something else. The ascension rather points us to our future, one of a restored and renewed humanity in God's presence. Because Jesus has ascended, we have this hope, our longing for the new creation and life with God. But the ascension also points us to the fact that Jesus has gone somewhere. So, having ascended, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now in that heavenly realm. As it says in Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So first of all, the idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father teaches us about who Jesus is. You see, in the ancient world, to be seated at the right hand of a ruler was a place of great honour. It meant this person was the ruler's closest advisor and someone who could speak or act on their behalf. I mean, it's the same idea we find in those great verses in Philippians 2 where we read that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus has been lifted up to that position of power, honour, and authority alongside God the Father. He is now reigning with him. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But Jesus' presence in heaven alongside the Father is not just about who Jesus is. It's also about who Jesus is for us. And just as Jesus is king, he's also the great high priest. Now, to talk about Jesus as priest gets into some parts of what Jesus did that might be a little bit harder for us to understand. Here in Australia, we don't live in a society where we have priests and sacrifices, and so it can all seem a bit foreign to us. But when we look at the book of Hebrews, it really centres on Jesus' role as the perfect priest and sacrifice. And when it talks about that, it doesn't only mean what happened on the cross. 
Now, priests, they were mediators between God and his people, and they had a few roles. One was making sacrifices on behalf of the people. That could be for purification or for consecration, setting people apart for things, uh, for a special purpose for God. But another part of their role was as intercessors. That is, people who would approach God, speak to God on behalf of others. And both of these ideas come out in what Hebrews talks of, about Jesus and what he does after he ascends into the heavenly realm. So first we have that idea of Jesus as the one who intercedes for us in Hebrews 7. So Hebrews 7, 23, we read, Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. You see, the way Jesus says it's not some mere transaction done once and then we're left to our own devices. No, we always have him as an advocate with the Father, interceding for us. He's on our side. He guarantees that when we ask in his name, the Father hears us. But there's more, as we find in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now this is perhaps not quite so easy for us to wrap our heads around. The idea here that there is a heavenly sanctuary, the most holy place, like in the tabernacle, but only in heaven. But what it means is that Jesus' sacrifice was not merely an earthly event, the death of a person. But because it was the death of the Son of God, his death has this cosmic significance. It changes everything everywhere and through all time. It provides cleansing and a ransom that sets us all free from sin. And what is the result of all that? Well, Hebrews goes on in chapter 10, uh, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Or also back in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Because Jesus' sacrifice is of cosmic dimensions, because his role as priest is that of an eternal advocate, that he ascended and is now with the Father, therefore we can have confidence to approach God. We can know that we have been cleansed, and we can know that Jesus has gone before us. You might have sung that line in the song about having an anchor that holds within the veil. That's from that verse in Hebrews 6.19. Jesus is that anchor, the one who has passed through the curtain, the veil, into the heavenly holy place, the presence of God, who has opened the way for us and who remains there for us. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, we have hope. We have hope that enables us to draw near to God. Now, I said at the start that the cross is not the end of the story, but the fact is there will be an end to the story. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. This world will not go on forever. God will intervene again in history, decisively. And as I said before, this whole idea of judgment is one that many Christians seem to swing to one side or the other, either not wanting to talk about it because it makes them uncomfortable or always talking about it, that old uh, fire and brimstone preaching. But neither of those are really the most helpful. To focus so much on judgment is a distortion of the message of Jesus, because Jesus has much more to say about things like love and forgiveness than about judgment. God's primary attitude towards us is love, not judgment. We're called to love God, not stand there quaking before God who's like a, a man with a big stick and hoping not to get hit. Now, sure, we are also called on to fear God, but that's about recognizing his majesty and holiness and our own weakness and acting humbly. I mean, you just have to read how many passages that talk about how God longs to do good things for his people, to see that he loves us and wants what is best for us. But at the same time, it's not a good idea to just ignore all the parts of the Bible that talk about judgment. Because it's in there, and not just once or twice, but quite a few times. And so if we truly believe that the Bible is the Word of God, His revelation to us, then we need to take all of it seriously, 
not just the bits we like. And there are some really clear statements, like in 2 Timothy 4.1, about Christ Jesus, who is going to come and judge the living and the dead. But it also comes up a whole lot in Jesus' teaching. I mean, he's the one that's all about love and forgiveness and helping those in need, right? Well, let's think about some of the parables he told. One is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, depending on what translation you go with. It's where a a man sows good seed in his field and waits for it to grow. But at night, his enemy comes and sows weed seeds among the wheat. And as the seeds start to grow, the workers on the farm come and tell the farmer that, look, there there are weeds growing in amongst your wheat. Should we go and pull them out? But the farmer says, no, let them grow. And when the wheat is ready to harvest, we'll pull them all up. The wheat will be taken to use, and the weeds you can bundle up and burn. And what's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about how there is this mix of people, just like the mix of plants. That some people are like good plants that will bear fruit, and others are like the weeds who will end in destruction. And so in Matthew 13, 13, verse 40, Jesus starts to explain this parable, saying, So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all those who cause sin, and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Or what about the parable of the sheep and the goats? This parable in in Matthew 25 starts with telling us this is about the final judgment. Because it starts, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. And it goes on to say how the people of the world will be separated, like a shepherd separating out the sheep from the goats. Now, it was common in those times for shepherds to have mixed flocks, the sheep and the goats, together. And sometimes they would need to separate them out. And in the same way, Jesus will separate the people. He will judge them. And then in verse 34... Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And then verse 41, He will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now that's only two examples, but there are certainly other parables as well where Jesus says, He will come back, and when he does, it will be to judge, to divide and separate. On one side are those who will enter God's kingdom, and on the other side, those who will face punishment. Now, the creed doesn't spell out the details of the judgment, but it wouldn't be a good thing for me to talk about how there will be a judgment without at least saying a little bit more. Because the obvious question, if there is going to be a judgment, well, how do I know whether I will be judged? 
Or rather, how do I know what the outcome of the judgment will be for me, as all will face judgment? Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says the basis for this judgment, it's all about how we respond to God, and especially how we respond to Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of God to us. So, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So, quite simple. Those who believe in Jesus have eternal life. Those who do not believe are condemned. But here is where we need to be at least a little bit careful. Because sometimes we get the idea that Faith or belief is all about accepting the right things to be true. And now that's certainly part of it. We need to recognise God as God. We need to accept that Jesus is the Son of God, His chosen one. But it can't be only that. You can have the right ideas and not be following Jesus. I mean, even the demons know who Jesus is, and that doesn't save them. And when we talk about judgment, yes, we are ultimately saved by what Jesus has done, not by what we do. But if we trust Jesus, if we follow him and give him our allegiance, then that will shape how we act. These are two sides of the same coin. And keeping clear on that helps us understand other parts of the Bible too. Like in Matthew 12, 36, it says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Or in John 5, 28, a time is coming when all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Or even in the parable we looked at before, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the ones who are called into the kingdom are the ones who did good who fed the hungry, who gave shelter to the homeless, who cared for the sick. Those who are sent away are those who did not do those things. You see, our allegiance to Jesus is a whole-of-life response. And that's what determines which side we are on in the judgment. Not just right thoughts, but a life oriented towards Jesus. Now, it doesn't require perfection because the basis of our salvation is what Jesus has already done. We talked about that when we looked at those passages in Hebrews. Jesus is the sacrifice, the great high priest who has cleansed us by his blood. 
But how we live shows if we are on his side or not. Do we live for God, live for others, or do we live for ourselves and our own ends? And that matters because the final judgment is real. It is what we will all face one day. We can't ignore it and hope it goes away. Instead, it should motivate us to a life shaped by Jesus, a life of love and truth, a life that longs for others to come to Jesus, not in a simplistic sense of trying to download some information to them about Jesus, but showing and telling them about a better life in Jesus, showing how following Jesus truly makes all the difference. I want to finish talking about judgment on a positive note. Did you know that while we often paint the picture of judgment as something scary, it's also a reason for hope. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just don't like living in this world of brokenness, of sin and suffering. I mean, the violence and death we hear about every day, whether that be in Israel or Gaza, Ukraine, Myanmar, or closer to home, the friends and the family who suffer from sickness and hurt. And in light of these things, the idea that Jesus will return to bring an end to sin and death actually seems like really good news. Something I hope for. And Jesus' judgment will be just. Not only about those who say the right things, but those who actually, whose lives are actually aligned to good or not. And so in the end, all of what Jesus has, is, and will do, following on from the cross, is grounds for our hope. Jesus ascended into heaven showing that he was not going to establish a kingdom on earth by force, but that he is about a kingdom that is bigger and greater and involves renewing humanity, having humanity dwell with God, our future hope. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he now reigns as king and serves as our great high priest, having cleansed humanity on a cosmic scale and where he now remains our advocate with the Father, giving us the sure hope with which we can approach the throne of God. And Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. This world will not go on forever. Jesus will set things right, and those who believe in him, those who have shown their allegiance to him, will share in eternal life with him, while those who persist in rejecting him will face judgment. And in this judgment brings us hope for the end of sin and suffering. And so as I finish, I want to invite you again to join with me in saying the creed as a reminder of our hope. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, 
God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.